Well, good morning to each one. I greet you in the <clears throat> name of Jesus this morning. It's a privilege to be here with you all today to worship with you again. For a message today, I invite you to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This message today may be a bit of a continuation of our Sunday school lesson, especially <clears throat> the third part of what we looked at today in our lesson. Here at the beginning, I have two questions for you to consider. The first question is, how do you measure your life? How do you measure the value of the things that you have done or accomplished? And the second question I have is, how does God measure your life? How does God measure the value of the things that you have done or accomplished? In this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, we will find the measuring answers. First, for how to measure your life, and then second, how God measures our lives. I'll make a few comments about this passage before we dig into it. Now, some would say 1 Corinthians 13 should be considered as a standalone passage. I personally see it as divinely placed between chapter 12 and 14, and I want to consider it in that way today. In chapter 12, Paul is teaching about the importance of spiritual gifts within the church. And Paul concludes chapter 12 with, but earnestly desire the best gifts. And yet I show you a more excellent way. And then in chapter 14, we find a focus on orderly worship. Verse 33 of that passage says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Verse 40 says, Let all things be done decently and in order. And so in chapter 12, Paul is saying, Every spiritual gift is important and needed for the spiritual growth of the church. And chapter 14 shows us, for these spiritual gifts to accomplish their designed purposes, each part must move in a timely and orderly fashion. And so then, what is the purpose of chapter 13? Well, chapter 13, I believe, is to teach the Corinthians that the practice and pursuit of spiritual gifts must always take place within the context of love. Love is the oil that lubricates the many moving parts of church life. It protects and keeps friction under control. And we know well that with moving parts comes friction. And so we use oil and we use grease to help keep friction under control. Well, love we will see is the ingredient that lubricates the many moving parts of church life. 
And as we know, there are many moving parts of church life. A lot happens within our church, the many different committees, the many different workings of the church. There's many, many moving parts. Well, today I want to look at this passage in three parts. In verse 1 through 3, we have the measure of love. In verse 4 through 7, we find the character of love. Verse 18 through 13 <coughs> concludes with the supremacy of love. And so we will use this outline for our study today. And so let's begin reading. Let's read verse 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Here in these opening verses, Paul introduces the measure of love. Love is the true measure of all that we say, all that we have, and all that we do. Without love, even our best accomplishments are nothing in God's eyes. And Paul, he takes this concept, this concept and applies it to three different areas. And notice, in all three of these areas, Paul is speaking in the highest terms. You, you, you really, as a human, you can't go higher, you see. First, a person's speech. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, can you speak any higher than that? No, that's, that's, that's as high as you can go. Second, a person's gift. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith that moves mountains, speaking in the highest terms. And third, a person's sacrifice. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and give my body to be burned. There's really nothing more that, that you can do than that. However, the conclusion to all of these is simply, nothing you say, nothing you have, and nothing you do has any value apart from love. Love is the measure of all things. So that brings us to part two, verse four through seven, the character of love. Let's read verse four through seven. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy, love does not parade itself, it is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, let me start over, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, 
believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The character of love. You know, if love is the true measure of all things, and if nothing we do matters apart from love, then I believe it would be wise for us to understand what this love is that Paul is speaking about. We use the word love in so many different ways in our culture. People say, I love Jesus, I love my wife, I love my children, I love my church, I love my dog, my cat, my horse, I love music, I love eating out, I love the mountains. People say it in many different ways. They put bumper stickers on their cars and so forth, what they love. Now, now ob obviously, the word love did not mean exactly the same thing in all of those sentences that I just mentioned. You know very well that the love I have for my wife is different than the love I have for the mountains or even the cat. So what is this love here? Is it something you feel or something you do? Well, it depends. Just like us, the Greeks understood that love has different meanings in different contexts. In fact, they even used different words to capture some of those meanings, words that we don't have. They had a word for the love of friendship and another word for the love of romance. They also had a word for the love of choice and commitment. Not a friendship love or a romance love, but agape love, choosing to love another person. The New Testament writers picked up on this word and used it many times to describe God's love for mankind in sending his son Jesus into this earth. And so the word agape came to represent unconditional love, choosing to love another person regardless of your feelings. You see, you could not have friendship love or romantic love for your enemy, but you could have agape love. You could choose to love your enemy unconditionally, regardless of how he has treated you. The word Paul uses for love here in 1 Corinthians 13 is agape. And so when Paul describes the character of love in these verses, he is talking about this agape love. And the very first description of this agape love about gives me the goosebumps. This agape love that is higher than those highest terms that we read in verse 1, 2, and 3 is first described as patient. And it's interesting, Paul begins with two words which describe positively what love is. Love is patient and love is kind. 
These first two descriptions of agape love describes how this love acts. Love acts patiently. Love acts kindly. The word patient here means to bear patiently with other people's faults and offenses, to be long-suffering. And we well know that in life there are situations that will call for patience, but there are other situations that call for lots of patience. <laughs> Long-suffering, patience that must go on and on and on. <clears throat> this is the first characteristic of agape love because it is totally unconditional. It is choosing to love another, not because of who they are, but in spite of who they are, in spite of what they do to you or have done to you. And then second, agape love is kind. It's not, it's not that difficult to be kind. It doesn't really take that much effort, but it does take intention. And I believe that is what Paul is talking about here, caring enough to be kind, caring enough to be kind to others, intention, looking for opportunities. I believe that was the thought of the Apostle Paul here. Sometimes just a word is enough. Proverbs 12:25 says, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. So first, this agape love is first patient, and second, it is kind. And then Paul moves on and gives a series of seven words which describe negatively what love is not. Let's look at those. First of all, love does not envy. Envy is desiring what another person has. And the word envy here, this word envy is translated from a strong word. It literally means to burn or burl, boil with envy. And then love does not parade itself. Parade means to exaggerate or display yourself, to brag about yourself. It literally has the thought of being a windbag. It's been said, when a person sings his own praises, he often gets the pitch too high. Love does not parade itself. Love does not behave rudely, which means to act disgratefully or dishonorably. It means to violate the accepted standards of behavior in such a way that you make others feel uncomfortable. Paul is speaking here of common courtesy, immodest dress, offensive language, and disrespect for others. All of these are examples of a general rudeness which has no place with agape love.
Next, love does not seek its own. Seeking your own advantage, putting yourselves before others. Love does not use other people to gain its own advantages. It looks outward rather than inward. It takes on the attitude of Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Love is not self-seeking. The next two negatives of what love is not could be considered together. Love is not provoked, or love is not easily angered. Not easily angered has to do with the short term. You know, that blowing up when someone presses your buttons, a quick reaction which often results in hurtful, hurtful words and harmful actions. And then love thinks no evil or it keeps no records of wrong. Keeping a record of wrong is the long-term decision to hold on to bitterness and resentment. You know, people will generally react to what just happened in two ways. You'll either have that quick flare up or a long burn. And someone described it like this, and I think it's a good way to explain it. They, they said it's either bottle rocket anger or freight train anger. And some of us older ones here, we know what the bottle rockets were back in the day. I think they're illegal now, but uh, yeah, around the 4th of July, you could buy bottle rockets. You put them in a cup or a bottle. You lit the little fuse and up in the air it would go and make a little pop and a little flash and it was all over. Basically a waste of money, but we thought they were fun. But that's, that's a description, that, that's an example of, um, of easily provoked. There's that little fizz and a little pop and then it's kind of all over. That's one type of anger that some of us deal with. And then you have that freight train anger, you know, on the surface, when something happens on the surface, there's not a lot of reaction but it's kind of an inside reaction that just, um, just kind of burns and um, you know, it, it, it's there just waiting to, um, just waiting you know, for the right circumstance to, to blow up or come out. And you know, some time ago I was visiting with a man from another state and he was sharing some, um, church, uh, some hard church problems that they're facing there in their congregation. And he had mentioned that they had a men's meeting and in that men's meeting, there were things brought up that had happened many, many years ago, like 10 years ago. And um, I think that's an example there of that freight train anger that, that build up inside that resentment. And you know, it's hard to stop a freight train, 
and so it is with that type of anger. Um, but love is not easily angered. Love keeps no records of wrong. So up to now, Paul has described love in positive terms, what love is. We saw two of those, and then seven negative terms of what love is not. Now he goes on to describe love with a contrasting statement in verse 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. In some translations, I believe, has with following the word rejoices. Love does not rejoice, or love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. You see, when I love with agape love, I don't find any pleasure when people are accused of sin, or even when it's proven they are guilty. Agape love mourns over sin that produces a need for justice. Love takes no pleasure when people are mistreated in any injustice, in any wickedness at all. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices in or with the truth. That's the contrast. Love rejoices when truth wins out, not evil. So Paul has described agape love in positive terms, what love is. He described love in negative terms, what love is not. He has described love with a contrasting statement. And now finally he tells us four things that love always does. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The word bears is related to the Greek word for roof. It means to protect by covering over, just as a roof provides protection covering from the weather. Protection is a natural byproduct of love. The good shepherd protects the sheep. A parent naturally protects his or her children. You know, sometimes children complain that their parents are overprotective. Paul calls it love. Love always protects believes all things, or love always trusts. The word believes here means to trust or believe, to commit, your to commit yourself to someone or something. Now we must keep in mind that love is not gullible or naive. It does not believe an obvious lie or blindly puts his trust in an untrustworthy person, but love chooses to believe the best about people until proven otherwise. Hope's all things, or love always hopes. Love is always hoping for the best, especially in other people. Love does not dwell on the problems of the past, but looks forward to the future with confidence and grace. Endures all things. Love always perseveres. Love never stops loving. It continues in the face of rejection and opposition. It bears up 
under insult and injury. Love perseveres because it's unconditional. It chooses to love people in spite of themselves. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. And Paul says that without this kind of love, we are nothing. Love is the true measure of all that we say, all that we have, and all that we do. Without love, even our best accomplishments are nothing in God's eyes. If I teach Sunday school, or preach sermons, or visit the sick, if I have not love, I am nothing. If I work my job, raise my children, support my family, but have not love, I am gain nothing. If I accomplish all that I set out to do, realize all my dreams, meet all my goals and objectives in life, but have not love, I accomplish nothing. That brings us now to part three. And let us read verse eight through 13, the supremacy of love. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul now contrasts love which never fails with prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Three specific spiritual gifts which will all pass away. Paul has already spoken about these gifts in chapter 12. He mentioned them in verses one through three of this chapter, and he will speak about them some more in chapter 14. These gifts, Paul says, are clearly important within the church. However, as important as they are to the church spiritual growth, these gifts are partial, or these gifts are never perfect or complete in themselves. In fact, they are not designed to be complete. They are designed to build up and serve the body of Christ. And so Paul says, we know in part and we prophesy in part. The gifts of knowledge and prophecy are partial, imperfect and incomplete. However, verse 10, gives us a hope of future perfection. When perfection comes, when Christ returns 
we will be perfected and complete, and the imperfect will disappear. In verse 11, we have the example of childhood. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And so, just as childhood has a temporary function, so do spiritual gifts. Childhood eventually gives way to adulthood. Spiritual gifts give way to spiritual maturity and love. Spiritual gifts are temporary. We use them for a time. Love, however, will last forever. And then, verse 12, we have the example of a poor reflection. The childhood example illustrated the temporary nature of spiritual gifts. And the mirror example illustrates the partial nature of spiritual gifts. Now we see in a mirror dimly. It's a poor reflection. Now the mirrors in Paul's day did not give the same quality reflection as today's mirrors do. They were made, I believe, from polished brass or other metals rather than from glass. But I found it interesting the Corinthians were famous for their bronze mirrors. And so this was um, a good example for Paul to use for them. But his, what he was saying is a poor reflection is partial by nature. You don't pick up all the fine details as if you were looking at someone face to face. You know, this time of the year, the boys and I, we have out quite a few trail cameras. We enjoy deer hunting and we have out quite a few cameras and they take pictures and they send them to our phone and we really enjoy that. But a lot of those pictures are a poor reflection. <laughs> and while we enjoy those reflections, we enjoy those pictures, it's still not the same as actually holding those sets of antlers in our hands, you see. And it's a, another example I thought of, we have a granddaughter way out in the state of Idaho, and we enjoy the pictures, we enjoy the videos, we like those, they're wonderful, wonderful uh, invention. But there's nothing like taking that little girl and looking at her face to face. You, you know, a good reflection is still a poor substitute for looking at someone face to face. Actually seeing them and touching them. And so it is with spiritual gifts. They are only partial in nature. And so think about it. If the gifts we see working in the church are but a poor reflection as, as in a mirror, then think of the glory when Christ returns and the church is perfected in love. When we shall, at that time, when we shall see Jesus face to face.
Now we know in part. You know, we're doing the best that we can. That's all we're doing here on this earth. We're doing the best that we can. And we do our part for a while and eventually we move off the scene and someone else will come in behind us. We know in part, we're doing the best we can. But when Christ returns, then we shall know fully, even as God fully knows us. And so you can see how Paul was using this passage. He was using this writing to balance out the working of the church, you see. And I find this passage so beautiful. Yes, spiritual gifts are so important within the church. Having a service and a church life organized is very important as well. But we need 1 Corinthians 13 in that mix. If it's not there, we will get lopsided one way or the other. Well, let's go on to verse 13. And now abides faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul proclaims the superiority of love not only to spiritual gifts, but to all other things as well. Faith, hope, and love are the three highest virtues of all. Faith is essential to the Christian life. The Bible says in Hebrews, without faith, it is impossible to please God. We believe through faith. We are saved and justified through faith. We live by faith. Faith is certainly one of the highest of all Christian virtues. And hope is also essential to the Christian life. We have the hope of salvation, the hope of the resurrection, and the blessed hope of Christ's return. Our hope is not like the world's hope, marked by uncertainty and doubt. Rather, Christian hope is bold, strong, and confident in the promises of God. And so hope, too, is another of the highest of all Christian virtues. If you were going to make a list of all the ways God could measure our lives, faith, hope, and love would have to make the top three. And out of these three, Paul says that the greatest of these is love. Why is that? Why does love top the list? Well, I would believe for the very exact same reason that love won out over spiritual gifts. Faith and hope are among the very highest virtues, and yet like spiritual gifts, they are only temporary and partial. Faith is for this life only. We live by faith now, but faith will not be necessary in heaven when we see Jesus face to face. And that day, faith will give way to sight. And hope like faith is for this life only. We wait in hope for the re redemption of our bodies. Once we are resurrected, once we have safely entered heaven, once we are forever in the presence of God, then hope will no longer be necessary. 
but love endures forever. Faith will eventually become sight, hope will ultimately be fulfilled, but only love continues for all eternity. I have been blessed and come to believe that this chapter is one of the most beautiful and meaningful passages in all of scripture. Verse one through three answers the how question. How does God measure our lives? The answer is love. Nothing we say, nothing we have, Nothing we do has any lasting value apart from love. Love is the standard by which God measures our lives. Verse four through seven answers the what question. If love is the standard by which God measures our lives, then what is love? The answer is love is patient, love is kind, and on and on it goes. Or basically, Love is being like Jesus. Verse 8 through 13 answer the why question. Why does God measure our lives according to love? The answer is because love is the greatest of all. Spiritual gifts are temporary and partial. Love is permanent and complete. Even faith will change to sight and hope will be changed to fulfillment. But love will never be replaced. Love lasts forever. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. We'll call for a closing song.